Of all the characters in the book of Genesis, I have to say that the one who has always fascinated me more than any other is the person of Jacob. Jacob is a very complicated character. He's one of the three patriarchs, of course, the patriarchs that are often named together. In fact, God himself names them together and identifies himself by them in the book of Exodus when he says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What's more, it's Jacob who actually becomes the namesake for God's entire people, since Jacob is the one whom God names as Israel, and it's his 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So it's pretty obvious that Jacob is something of a hero within the Bible, and yet at the same time, he often comes across as anything but a hero. A couple sessions ago, I noted the fact that Abraham himself was far from perfect, and we discussed some of Abraham's faults, but he still comes across as so, so heroic and so grand in his faith that Abraham seems a little unapproachable. You can admire him, you can seek to emulate him, but it feels hard to relate to Abraham. Jacob isn't like that. He seems like a more complicated person and his faults are more apparent. He lies and he deceives. He feels fear and he flees. He seems at different times both incredibly insecure and remarkably self-assured. He's a man of, of powerful passions and emotions. To quote the Jewish philosopher Leon Cass, Jacob is not only the most rational and resourceful character in Genesis, he's also the most passionate. He displays lust for gain and righteous anger. He enjoys big dreams and suffers great sorrows. And Jacob is the first biblical character who clearly falls in love. Both in powers of soul and in the conduct of life, he offers an enlarged picture of the distinctively human at work. I think that's one of the reasons I find myself so drawn to Jacob, because he displays so many of the, the same desires and fears and hopes and disappointments that I have felt, because he is so relatable, because he isn't some perfect, unapproachable saint. Jacob, Jacob is an everyman, and in him we find ourselves. In this session, I'd like to look at how Jacob reflects some aspects of the common human experience. And to do that, I'd actually like to take a note from the work of a leading German sociologist named Hartmut Rosa. Rosa has spent decades researching and writing about about modern human life. And in one of his most recent books, he identified what he thinks is the central and most influential aspect of the way that we experience the world today. And that is what he calls uncontrollability. The world around us is fundamentally uncontrollable. But that doesn't stop us from trying to take control. In fact, Rosa says, that it's something we do all the time in almost every aspect of our lives. Our encounter, he says, with the uncontrollable and our desire or struggle to bring it under control 
form a red thread that runs through all areas of our lives. Uh, Rosa has written a lot about the ways that we do that in our day-to-day -day lives, but we don't need to read his books to understand what it looks like for a person to try to, to control the uncontrollable forces around them. All we need to do is to look at the life of Jacob, that biblical everyman, that relatable patriarch. Because if there's anyone in the Bible who spends his life trying to control the uncontrollable, it is certainly him. Take, for instance, Jacob's relationship to the, to the calling and blessing of God. In Genesis chapter 25, when Rebekah conceives and feels two children struggling in her womb, she inquires of the Lord what's going on, and he tells her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Two realities about the course of Jacob's life are made clear in this pronouncement by God. The first is that Jacob will be the recipient of God's blessing. The older, Rebekah is told, will serve the younger. This goes against all cultural norms and expectations. According to, to the rules of primogeniture, to the rules of ancient culture, the blessing and the inheritance of Isaac, it ought to go to Esau, the oldest, not Jacob. For Esau, not Jacob, is the firstborn. But God tells Rebekah otherwise. The firstborn will not be the one who receives the blessing that has been passing from father to son, from Abraham to Isaac, and from Isaac to now, apparently, the younger, Jacob. That much is clear from the words that the Lord speaks to Rebekah. But that's not the only thing. He also makes it clear that Jacob's life will be one of strife and struggle. These two nations in Rebekah's womb, they will be divided. They will struggle. There will be conflict between them. And that's exactly what we see in Jacob's life. From before he even emerges from the womb, his life is defined by something uncontrollable, something he did not choose. Jacob did not choose to be the recipient of blessing. God chose that. In theological terms, we would say that the blessing that rests on Jacob's life is one of pure grace. He did nothing to earn it. In fact, as the Apostle Paul points out in Romans chapter 9, this blessing precedes anything Jacob did, good or bad. It's simply a gift. It is uncontrollable. And yet, it seems that much of Jacob's life is spent attempting to control and to manipulate this blessing for his own ends. And he'll use, it seems, any means necessary to do it. First, there's the, the story that we read about the bargaining over stew, that story that occurs right after uh, we're told about the twins' birth. Esau has grown up to be a hunter and a man of the field, and Jacob, we're told, is a simple man and a dweller of tents. Now, this isn't a meant as a criticism of Jacob, but it does indicate that he is the naturally weaker of the two. So being weaker, he, he has to use his cunning, and he's able to persuade Esau to sell over his birthright for a bowl of stew. 
And two chapters later in chapter 27, we read this story about the next time that Jacob and Esau compete for a blessing. On that occasion, of course, Jacob isn't alone in his attempts to, to seize control of this blessing. His mother helps him. She's the one that suggests he dress up as his brother Esau and deceive his nearly blind father and trick him into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. It's a strange story. Strange because one of the patriarchs of the faith, the man who will soon become Israel, is seemingly using the tricks of a con artist to manipulate his elderly father. Some interpreters are so bothered by, white, by what Jacob does here that they try to, to make justification for it. St. Augustine, for instance, says that Jacob wasn't really being untruthful when he tells Isaac, I am Esau, your firstborn. For, Augustine says, for Jacob had already made a bargain with his brother and sold him his rights as a firstborn. So he told his father what he had bought from his brother. Augustine then goes on to say that, that Isaac understood what Jacob was saying. And Isaac knew the whole time it was really Jacob. Of course, if that were true, it would certainly make Jacob's actions better. But Isaac's reaction when Esau returns, Genesis says that Isaac trembles violently when Esau comes back and he realizes he's been deceived. That reaction makes it pretty clear that Isaac was duped. Jacob uses deceit to try to take control of a blessing, a blessing that was promised to him from before birth. But if you read the story carefully, you'll realize it's not just Jacob. Rebecca is right there with him, trying to trick her husband. And they're not the only ones who are trying to control things. Isaac is doing the same. Now, whether or not Isaac is aware that Esau sold his birthright to his younger brother, he is undoubtedly aware of the words that the Lord spoke to Rebekah. Surely she must have told him. And yet Isaac seems determined to ensure that the blessing goes to Esau. And why? Why ensure this? Because, as we're told back in chapter 25, because Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Esau too seems to be implicated in this whole plot of trying to control a blessing. When he returns and Isaac realizes that he's been deceived, they both know then though, they both know that there's nothing that can be done. The blessing has already been given. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, something is at work which neither Isaac nor Esau can control. And this is part of the reason that Jacob's vision in chapter 28 is so significant. After he deceives Isaac, Esau is enraged and Rebekah tells Jacob that he has to flee and go back to her brother who is back in Haran, the city that Abraham and Sarah had originally lived and where they left from. Stay, stay with Laban, my brother, for a while, Rebekah tells Jacob, until... Esau's anger blows over, and then you can return. And so that's what Jacob does. He leaves Beersheba, and he heads toward Haran. And on the way, 
he comes to a place where he lays down to sleep for the night. And while he's asleep, he has a vision. It's a vision of a ladder, or probably better translated, a ramp, which stretches from heaven to earth. It's clearly meant to, to be a kind of visual representation of the activity between the two, heaven and earth. And in the vision, Jacob sees angels of God ascending and descending the ramp, bearing messages, no doubt, and carrying out the will of God. And the Lord stands above the ramp and speaks to Jacob and says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, you'll notice that this sounds very similar to what God had said to Abraham in chapters 12 and 15 and then to Isaac in chapter 26. And it should sound similar because that's what God is doing here. He's basically repeating to Jacob the same promises he made to them. But this is the first time that Jacob has heard it. It's the first time that he has been spoken to by God, that he has been given this promise. And after God promises to make him into a great nation and bless him, he also adds, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, this is, a, this is a very significant turning point in this narrative about Jacob's life. So far, as I've said, his life has been one of trying to use his wits and his cunning and even deceit to seize control of his own future, to control the uncontrollable. And now for the first time, now God addresses him directly. And he gives him a clear message. I and I alone am the one who controls your future. And I and I alone am the one who can secure it for you. In other words, what the Lord is telling Jacob is, Jacob, this blessing that you are trying to seize, it's not something you can control. You will become a great nation and you will be blessed, but it won't be because of your own struggle or your own strength of will. It will be because I am with you and I will bring it about. That's what God is saying. And Jacob's response to this dream and this vision, well, it's, to be honest, it's a bit ambiguous. It divides interpreters. It's clear that Jacob is overwhelmed. He's in awe. He recognizes that he has had an encounter with the living God. That's why he names the place Bethel, the house of God. Because as he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. But even though he realizes that, even though he realizes that he has encountered the living God, it's not clear that he has given up trying to have some kind of control over the situation even control over the uncontrollable God. Because after he sets up a memorial, he makes a vow to God. 
where Jacob says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, then the Lord shall be my God. Now, how should we interpret this vow? What exactly does Jacob mean, if God will be with him? Didn't God already promise as much? Now, some interpreters think that Jacob's words aren't meant to imply a, a real conditional in his vow, that they, they should instead be translated not so much if God will be with me, but rather given that, given that God will be with me, this is my vow. Others, however, read this sentence and they see evidence that Jacob hasn't entirely changed his ways. He's still trying to use his cunning. He's still trying to somehow control the situation. As one scholar puts it, God has already promised Jacob in the dream that he will do all these things for him. Jacob, however, remains the suspicious bargainer, a wrestler with words and conditions. He carefully stipulated conditions of sale to the famished Esau. Now he wants to be sure God will fulfill his side of the bargain before he commits himself to God's service. And this, this way of reading Jacob's words seems to be confirmed as we move on with his story. Because once he gets to his uncle Laban, we see that Jacob hasn't really stopped being the schemer and the bargainer that he was before. He's met the Lord at Bethel, and he knows that his prosperity, he knows that it's in the uncontrollable hands of the living God. And yet, even though he knows that, even still Jacob wrestles. Even now, he's trying somehow to take control of the world around him. And that's one of the reasons I find myself so drawn to Jacob. Because in that way, he's very relatable. In that way, he is Jacob, the everyman.